do consider speeding up with settings to consume this content in a fraction of the time. Welcome to another episode of Newbie Dice Podcast. And today we're going to have an up close and personal chat with Adam Beller, fresh off of hosting the Masters. And so I think he had a little bit of a breather. So we're going to just catch up and, you know, just see what we've been up to and how has the Masters hosting experience been. So welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me, Paige. Always great to be on. And you've just entered a tournament and is it Lady of the Lake? You just went for Lady of the Lake? Yeah, that was just this past weekend when we're recording here. I had a lot of fun. Lady's been a kind of a staple tournament for me and the the guys from Omaha here for a long time. So I think it was five or six years ago now was when we first went and we've gone every other year since, barring, you know, the years with COVID that they got canceled. So. Right. And I saw that the tournament rules were pretty interesting, especially in the scenarios. Has it always been like that? It has. That was, you know, one of our, one of our draws to the event. It it really showed us that with this, again, early on in Kings of War, when we were first coming over from fantasy as refugees, we got to see, you know, a pretty big difference in the way the game could be played. And yeah, for those that haven't seen, I do, you know, shameless plug, I do have some videos out. You can kind of look at my YouTube channel, Master Site, to see all the details of the event and even some battle reports I did. But the the really fun thing with Lady is that you pick you pick a scenario and your opponent picks a scenario and you both play to both of those scenarios. And so you're trying to win two scenarios at once. Uh, and then there's certain points that you accumulate through both of them. So it it really freshens up the game now that we've been playing Kings in, in these certain scenarios for so long. But even if you're not, you know, a veteran to the game, it it really adds a different different thought process, different tactics to the game, which I, I always love interesting tweaks and additions to that when I go to different tournaments. Right. So yeah, not the shameless plug at all. I've been watching your battle reports on Master Site, so do check that out. You have pumped out all five battle reports in five consecutive days, I think. <laughs> Up to game number four. I haven't finished watching game number five. But yeah, do enjoy your You're on take. a good one. You're on yeah. a good one. Game number four was against Sean Troy. He yeah. he's a great player. So Yeah, yeah, I do enjoy your battle reports. As well, I liked all the, what do you call it, the tactical insights between within the game. What made you do make this decision and that? Why do you charge? Why do you hold back? And those are the things that I like to watch from a battle report and learn from them, which was the main goal of my battle reports as well. Yeah, but do you think that such such tournaments with unique scenario rules makes it more interesting for the seasoned player, but a little bit more, a little bit harder for a newer player to play the game because, you know, they are still at the stage that they are figuring out their armies and 
now they have to figure out this new set of scenarios and they have to figure out two scenarios. Is it a little bit more of a mental load for newer players? I think it definitely can be if if those newer players are really going in with higher expectations with their you know final finish of the event. So if they want to come in and they're hoping to win, you know, three, four, five games, then yes, I think that it definitely can take some wind out of their sails. But I think one of the best parts about Lady is it's it's more advertised as an event, like a gathering, a festival versus a a hardcore tournament you know and I, I think that's been a kind of an adopted thing across the the midwest the mountain region and, and even further into the u.s scene for other other regions that i've gone to as well that you know the, these events you usually do play against competitive players and you're playing a very competitive game but the the game isn't the end-all be-all or the main reason why people are there it's really about building the community so i think lady does you know can't or can be a little bit daunting in the scenario side of things but i will say they they take what you know like scenarios from the book and just mildly adapt them so that it's not overwhelming in that aspect and then there are some unique ones, but they give you 12 options for scenarios and you're only picking five out of your game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can go in there and literally say, I want to play dominate, invade, control, loot, and pillage, because those are five scenarios I know out of the book, no problem. And they're going to be slightly modified. And then, you know, likely your opponents are going to be picking a similar set of scenarios, at least throughout a couple of your games. So there's probably not going to be a whole, a huge learning curve, I would say. I think the biggest learning curve is just trying to learn to play two scenarios at once versus actually understanding what those scenarios are. Mm -hmm. I do think having two scenarios is interesting or even I think you call it asynchronous asynchronous scenario, sort of like if I have my own objective and you have your own objective, I think that can be interesting too. You trying to score yours while you're trying to deny the opponent of theirs, even if you can't score on their objectives, can be quite interesting. All right. So what are you planning next? What's next on the docket for you? And or even hobby-wise, are you building a new army or anything like that? Now, right now, I'm kind of in a stalling pattern, I guess I would say, where I'm, you know, trying to, you know, think of different lists and different armies to play, just to really cover different tactics when it comes to, you know, the battle reports that I do. So that's why I picked up Kingdoms of Men for Lady of the Lake. And I'm actually taking them as well to the next event, which is this next weekend coming up here bison brawl out of oklahoma city oklahoma Mm -hmm. Um, and then i'm not sure what i'm going to do after that for events i I haven't decided 100 percent yet but i figure you know at least two events worth so that's 10 total games or battle reports should give me and hopefully viewers a good enough or enough data enough information content to really dissect you know how how good the army is how good certain units are what they like what they don't like and then you know i hope that i think kingsman is a severely underplayed army and after having played it 
in this past tournament, I actually do think it is quite a good list or can be quite a good list. I liked some things I played. I didn't like others, but I'm just mildly tweaking it slightly because there there's a point difference. So I was playing 2300 at Lady. I have to play 2250 at Bison Brawl. So I'm going to adjust the list slightly because of that, but really try and keep the core the same in order to get a good sample size. But as far as this, what I have coming up here is really a lot of events right now. So I have the two that I mentioned here. And then in September, I have a one day in Minneapolis, which is going to be very difficult one day. Over half the few, I think we're looking at like 24 plus players there. It's at Jason Burr's house, who was on the Minnesota Masters team. And then we over half the players there are Masters players. So we're, it's a very competitive room, but in general, we all try to take lists or armies that we normally wouldn't take because Jason's one day doesn't require a painting for, for the event. So, so probably going to pull something completely new out for that event, mm-hmm. that one day, but then the next week following that event is my biggest event of the year that I'm going to, which is Crossroads GT in New York. So I'm actually flying out to the event and I'm borrowing Corey Reynolds' elf army that he's been so kind to loan me so I don't have to fly with an army. And for those that don't know, Crossroads is a four-man team tournament where you all four of your teammates play an individual game, but then you can combine all four scores against all four of your opponent's scores who are on a different team and whoever got higher points as a team wins the the matchup so it first time i've been there i've heard great things i i've hung out with a lot of the northeast guys mid-atlantic guys that make it there every year and i'm looking forward to that one then, so you're playing in a team of four and yes who are you teaming up with Good question. So my team is going to be Shannon Shoemaker from Chicago. Yes, he's not retired. He does live. So pulling him, you know, pulling him back into the game. And then I have Eric Trowbridge from Ohio. And then Eric Trowbridge has a local club mate named Roger, who's going to be our fourth man in the events. So we are team dropping tro and we're we're definitely looking forward to that so <laughs> travis not going no that was that was the first thing i asked i asked travis <laughs> i asked billy i was like hey guys you know i'm i'm committing to the like this was in like march i think earlier this year you know uh-huh. so 6 months in advance i said hey guys this is on my calendar i'm making it this year i need a team you guys should come with me and both of them are like, nah, man, I can't, nah, nah, nah. And then so I end up, you know, finding this team, not not actually looking for it necessarily, but just in my talks with other people mentioning that I'm going, Eric was like, yeah, let's team up. I'll go with you. And then, you know, Shannon was the third man that he's like, well, I'm actually free that weekend. I haven't been to an event in a while. I'll play. So, and then far fourth, Eric talked his buddy into it. So and after I, you know, this team's already set and good to go, Travis is like, man, I was, re- I really wish I was going with you guys. I'm like, Matt, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, 
This this could have been great. I would have loved to have the the Omaha boys just roll in and and show them what we're all about, you know. But yeah, no, it, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Speaking of which, I did hear that one of the tournaments painting is not a requirement, which is a topic that I'd like to get into because you you don't like to paint, right? You assemble your armies, do you? Travis is actually. He loves assembling models, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm indifferent. So, I it's not that I can't, but when Travis enjoys doing it, I just you know say, okay, cool, you you can do it, sure. Because most of the, so the way it works is Travis, Billy, and I, anything we got we take home from like events and stuff, it usually all ends up at Travis's house. Even if like I <laughs> won a giant or whatever, I'm just like, well here add it to the stash and so we all just like pool our models in general and then if any of us have an idea for an army we just go into travis's basement we're like oh look we got all of these things we can use so you know we're we're good friends like that we're not you know holding on to our own stuff and everything so travis loves assembling stuff and so i just kind of let that happen but yeah i I've just never had the enjoyment out of the hobby part. It always felt like work to me and it it drove me away from the game more than towards the game. So if I I did attempt in fantasy to paint my own vampire counts army and I found that I was just, you know, procrastinating, making up excuses, and then actively not looking to play the game because I had the painting project to do for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, realizing that I just purposely chose not to take on any any endeavors in that. So right. it's not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no shame in that. And Travis helps you assemble and you pass it on to somebody to help you paint? Yep. Yeah, pretty much. So. <laughs> I, I've only had two armies actually painted for me. It's It's been my Empire Dust army and then the Night Stalker army that I had. Mm-hmm. Empire Dust was done by Drew Richardson, who was just starting up commissions at the time. He's from Oklahoma City mm-hmm. and a good friend that I, I knew for a while. So... I, he, you know, told me about it. I told him, you know, an idea that I had and he was all for it, wanted to, you know, started off with a kind of a a friendship thing, you know, somebody that he knew and I was all for that. So it it worked out. And then Grant Barnes, uh, another Omaha guy here, who's a, a great painter and, I believe he does TikTok videos even. So shout out to him. If you guys are on TikTok, look for Orc Dork, I believe is his name. And he does a bunch of painting tutorials and stuff like that on there. And his main focus is to accomplish high quality techniques in faster times. So he's looking really for a good turnaround, but with higher quality in the the final outcome. Right. Grant Barnes, is he one of the commentators on the stream? He was, yes. So that that's another good shout out. He was Matt's right-hand man when <laughs> it came to the uh, the Masters commentating. Yeah. 
I'll get back to that in a moment. So I'll just like to finish this trail of the painting. So I consider myself more of a gamer than a painter as well. It wasn't until Kings of War that I had my first fully painted army. I played 8th edition for a year, Fantasy, and then War Mahots for 3 years before going to Kings of War. And in War Mahots, I have a few units painted, but then you know the, the meta is always shifting. That's you're always fielding different units. That sort of prevented me from painting most of my stuff other than the war casters and a few staple units that I got painted. And it wasn't until Kings of War that I got my first fully painted army. And even then, it was Redkin. So even then, I think I commissioned some of the slave rats to be painted. I, I based it, right? I put it in team, but then I was like, I'm not going to paint this 40 rats. I'm going to pass it off to somebody to paint the rats. But even then, after getting commissioned painted, I do feel like, like an element of this unit is not mine. <laughs> so, yeah. so even though I like to play more than I like to paint, I still end up painting my own units no matter how long it took. Of course, there are moments where I feel very inspired and I paint, churn out quite a lot. And there are moments that, you know, totally uninspired and I don't churn out much at all. And to come around to this, which is, if you don't enjoy the hobby aspects of the game, so that's a, a, a significant portion of this hobby in general, right? So what draws you to tabletop gaming if you don't like the hobby aspects? Like, would you have rather played video games where you don't have to do all that painting? You know, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, I still play some video games, but I think the biggest draw for me... And I, I don't think I realized this early on, but maybe it wasn't there early on. But right now, the biggest draw for me is really the the players, the people. I've I've gone to events or, you know, one days or a tournament, like maybe I couldn't make, make it there until like lunchtime on Saturday. I, I've gone to events without even playing at the event just to hang out with the people that are there. So... And a lot of the guys that I end up spending a lot of time with have, have said this too, that if we all just got together and didn't even play any games and just hung out for a weekend, we would probably enjoy ourselves and have, you know, the same number of people show up, have a great time as well. So I think the community is the real reason why I'm still invested as heavily as I am in this game. But outside of that, I definitely started out as a, a tactical player. I looked at it, you know, very similar to any other type of competitive game of there, there's something here that hasn't been explored. There's some strategy that hasn't been exploited or used yet. And I want to find out what that is. And I want to be the one to really, you know, drive that newfound way to play. So that that's always what keeps me going when it comes to list building and finding a, a new army or new game style or way to play. But what keeps keeps me actually invested in the game is the players for sure. Right. Yeah, even myself, I stopped playing video games. League of Legends was my last one almost 10 years ago, I think. More than 10 years ago. And 
Yep. So when I started playing tabletop games, I have not went back to playing almost no video games at all. all right. I'm looking at Baldur's Gate 3, though. This looks really good. Uh, oh, I am too, Paige. I, I <laughs> want it so bad. But I know that if I get it, I'm not I'm not doing battle reports probably for a month. And I, I have way too many tournaments coming up for that. So. <laughs> for myself, the slight resistance is I, I don't have a gaming computer anymore. So if I have to play Baldur's Gate 3, I need to get a new computer or upgrade my work laptop. And that sort of put the bricks on things. And I think my brother-in-law said, it's okay if you don't get it at launch, you know. Further down the road, they will release a collector's edition where it's all bundled with all the expansions and it's at a lower price. So when when you feel like it, it there'll always be a good deal. So, right, I'm not in a hurry. So no need to worry about that. What other video games have you been playing of recent years? Um, So I, I dabble in quite a bit of, uh different stuff but i would say the main main one that i always come back to is total war games and recently obviously total war warhammer 3 mm-hmm. but even before warhammer was in total war when travis and i were in like middle school and throughout high school we played total war the medieval total war and medieval total war 2 that was our, that was like our weekends. That was, you know, every other night after school, we would just end up, you know, at each other's place and we would, we would play, it wasn't a multiplayer game, but we would both just sit down and play it and, you know, manage, managing your cities and moving your armies. And then Travis was more of the micromanager of once we got into a battle, he was, he really enjoyed the moving of the units and, you know, the real time strategy of that. So I, I, it's, it's been my love. And in a lot of ways, I think it's a big reason why we both play Kings of War now, because there's a lot of similarities in, in the, the aesthetics and the, what we really like about the game. So, but a couple other games that I've dabbled in and play, I, I like card games. So I've played Magic, I've played Hearthstone. I also mm. enjoy chess. You know, I've come back to chess occasionally, and I'm not necessarily a great player. I, I find that it it's one that I, I feel like if I did spend a lot of time on, I could be a lot better. But I also know that there's always going to be somebody better, and that right. part of that is a little difficult to to really get motivated on. So. But then I, I do love our MMORPG games. So Baller's Gate is definitely one that I will be getting. And then... Oh, that's not an a, MMO, right? That's just a classic it, RPG. No, it, it's a classic RPG. But I do like the multiplayer aspect where you can play, you know, with two to four players together. Right. I, I have not... Um, no, I do not know that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's awesome. But I guess the MMORPG that I was thinking of is I did play Guild Wars and Guild Wars 2 as well throughout my youth. And even up to currently, I've as current as a couple months ago, I was playing occasionally. So, Right. I've never gotten to MMOs because I always detest having to research when I have to play. It's like I'd rather be playing than reading articles on how to optimize my build. <laughs> so... So that was always a problem for me. But ironically, in in Kings or in tabletop games, you, you can't play all the time. So you actually do a lot of research 
instead of playing. Right. Yeah, so for, for me, recently I've been playing Armada, Kings of War Armada, and we're trying to get a local group going. There was a lot of interest at first, and then it's waning. So we're trying to get that going. I am writing an article for Dash 28. They've asked me to write a second article. So the new one is called Shooting Armies, A Necessary Evil. So keep a lookout for that one coming out soon. And yeah, I'm churning out more podcast content, trying out a new software I could, I, I'm using. So hopefully that would allow me to, to churn out more podcast content. And in terms of gaming, I've been playing a bit of Shadowpoint, Star Wars Shadowpoint. That did look good to me. I, I, big Star Wars fan, love the aesthetic of it. Yeah, it's the Clone Wars animation aesthetic, so a little bit cartoony with the stretch, the proportions and all that. I don't think it was a, I don't think it is a super good game. Ironically, <laughs> it's created by the new Atomic Mass games, right? It's, I mean, the people behind it are the ex-Warmer Hordes developers and team. So like this Shadowpoint was their baby because when they hopped over to Atomic Mass games, Star Wars Legion was already in existence. So they were improving on an existing product whereas Shadowpoint, I think, from what I heard, it's built from the ground up by the team itself. So for for something that's supposedly very high caliber from a high caliber team, I thought it was okay. It's not an awesome must-play game to me. Just so happened that the store manager that was very into Shadowpoint keep asking me to play. <laughs> and I was like, sure, I'll oblige. And yeah, you know, I, I get to I I the nature of my family and my work, I get to play more on weekday afternoons, which is a bit of a off time for most people. So when store managers get to get to play with me, it's always good because I get to play. So I, I realized I was pretty good at it. I think I've never lost to him once because and he's a quite a he's quite a mean max player himself. So for me to not lose, I was like, oh that's quite an achievement. So I think I'm pretty good at this game. So yeah, so so with that, I was playing with him and the store's collection at first. Then I decided to buy in a few expansion packs. So my agreement with him was like, okay, I'll, I'll let's pull our collections. You buy all the evil stuff, I buy all the good guys, and then we'll share the collection. Yeah. So it sounds like the good guys are just broken in that game, huh, Paige? <laughs> That's interesting. That's an interesting theory because at first I played... From the core set, I played Ahsoka and Darth Maul. You, you can actually pair up all the good guys and bad guys, so there's no restriction. You oh. just form two squads. Mm -hmm. You just form two squads that each squad has a leader, a secondary, and a support, which are often two, two guys, two troopers, right? So, yeah, so I chose Ahsoka and Darth Maul, and then I took... Mandalorians. So they are the good Mandalorians and the evil Mandalorians. I'm not that into the law, but they're the super commandos with Gar Saxon and the clan Kreese Mandalorians with Bo Katan. And the reason why you won't want to mix the squads as often is because they have synergies that might or might not work with people from the other side. So the Mandalorians all have great synergies together. So in my first two games I played 
that and the the Mandalorian synergies just carried me to victory. <laughs> and <laughs> then I started, I think, the good guys. It was much harder because I felt that the clones were pretty bad. The clones as the trooper clones are pretty crappy. But Obi-Wan makes them very good. Not very good. So I was like, wow, Obi-Wan makes clones great. So when I used Obi-Wan, I realized clones were crap. Obi-Wan's made them decent. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay. Yeah. So yeah, very lucky to pull out victories. But yeah. And another thing I've been working on is actually working on my own skirmish sort of fantasy game. I've designed my own game. It's, I think it will be a cross between... I think it's most similarly resembles Dreadball. It's actually like an arena beat em up game, but I added a ball element. So, so that's something that is quite heavily into development. I've actually got a sort of an open beta test version of it, but of course, people will need to print out their own cards and stuff and tokens. But if anyone is interested to help me play test the game, to hit me up. And yeah, I can send you all the stuff to try it. Try the game out. I'm pretty proud of it. My design philosophy between or in regards to designing this game is that firstly, the core number one thing requirement I have is that the game must be able to finish comfortably within an hour. So that's an important hallmark for a skirmish game to me because you know you, you roll up on a Wednesday night you probably have about two hours to play a game, right? Two, two and a half. So if if you play a game that takes more than an hour and a half, you get to only play one game in an evening. And sometimes you lose the game. You lose the game because of a silly mistake. And then you got to steal in that defeat for another week until you roll up the next Wednesday. <laughs> So sometimes to be able to play two games is great because, you know, you make a silly mistake in game one, re-rack, play a second game. Even if you lose, at least you don't feel that bad that, you know, I lost one game because of a silly mistake. So that's one thing that I really wanted to do in a skirmish game. Yep, second game is that the setup is quick. The game is fast but tactical. So stuff like that. And so I was really proud of the game that I have designed. It's in a later stage of development. Very playable right now. Yep. Yeah, let's move on to talk about the Masters. But before that, you had the bug eater just before Masters, didn't you? Yeah, it was six weeks before Masters, exactly. Right. And and it it was it was a pretty good turnout. We we had a slight slight downtick in our numbers. So in the past two years, we've been you know, mid to low 40s for headcount. Mm -hmm. But this year we were at, what was it, 36, I want to say. So mid 30s. So right. with which we were expecting, a lot of people are kind of on the cusp of their travel range when it comes to Omaha. So we got, you know, a lot of South players from Texas, a lot of like, and then Rob Fanuff and a lot of the Tennessee guys, all those guys being between like nine to 12 hours away for a driving when you, you know, 
a lot of those guys were just saying, hey, we'll see you in six weeks. You know, they didn't want to make that drive twice in a row, basically. So, right. and, and I don't, I don't blame them. And like I said, we were kind of expecting that. But we have a very good core group here in our own region. And then also Minnesota has a large group of players and that's within five to six hours of us. So those guys are more than happy to come down and play with us as many times as they can get an opportunity to. So in the end, the the win actually went to Jason Burr for the overall for the event, which he was a little surprised the he didn't you know win all his games and there there was somebody that did win all their games or at least had four wins and a draw but jason you know has great paint and then it was his sports score that really shot him up there as well so he you know emulated the all-around player and you know did well enough for battle did you know great on paint and then excellent on sports so Big congratulations to him for pulling out the win. Right. First first question, probably because it's not obvious to me from for non-US, why is it called Bug Eater? <laughs> That's actually a very good question. And I'll be I'll be honest, not a lot of people outside Nebraska will know the answer to this. Mm-hmm. So Nebraska is a fairly low populated state in general. So we don't have any professional sports teams here. Uh, so mm-hmm. the sports that Nebraskans usually root for or are born and raised into is our university team, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. They were not always called the Cornhuskers, though. Back in the 1930s and 40s, I want to say, they were originally known as the Bug Eaters. So right. it it's an, a very old school name for our college team that it yeah it was one of those i i didn't make the i didn't decide the name for our event but i think it in the it it's turned out well in the end so not not a lot of people probably know that even to this day we we've been running it for over 10 years now and it's definitely a little known fact so so before that it was a fantasy tournament Warhammer Fantasy? Yes. Yep. So it started originally as a 40K fantasy combo event Mm. out of the same high school that we do it out of right now. And then it's just grown every year. And now we're more of a mini convention where we have closer to 10 or 12 game systems being played over the course of the weekend. Oh, wow. So so Kings of War is just one part of of it, right? And we, we are typically the the second or third largest, depending on the year event. 40K is always number one. There's almost always an 80 to 100 player draw for 40K at Bug Eater, just because our local club, the, the Outlanders, we, we have a lot of very good 40K players and a lot of players that are connected deeply in the community. So it's a big draw for being a, a well-run event, a good, good competitive event. But then also, you know, a lot of these players are going out to a lot of other tournaments and they're, you know, pulling in those players. So the the 40K event always has a great turnout. Mm-hmm. And then for, for us in Kings of War, we, we like to, you know, say that 
between Travis, Billy, and I, we we do travel quite a bit. So we try to emulate that of, you know, going out, get the word out, show them the the quality of player, not only over the tabletop, but, you know, the, the quality of the person that you get to hang out with at the event too, mm-hmm. and try to pull people in that way. Right. What is the other game system that is vying for second second place? It's been Age of Sigmar. Uh, right. Is kind of that, you know, they get like 30s to 40s usually. So I think mm. this year they they beat us, but it was our low year. And if we had our normal numbers, we would have been second. So right. but we we always get a full gymnasium to ourselves and we have plenty of room. So if we did ever get, you know. 60 70 80 plus guys we would we would be able to fill up that gymnasium and we would find more room because the the high school that it's out of a lot of people got to see the the amount of space that we got this year at masters um, but there there's plenty of room to go around and we will use it if we can get the bodies there yeah i mean 12 10 to 12 game systems and if kings of war is taking one whole gymnasium 40k is taking another gymnasium, right? And then the other game systems has to be spread out across different function rooms and all that. Yeah, 40k actually prefers the they they took over the library and a different section of the of the school. So they're they're in a couple different larger gathering rooms for, but it really it kind of splits up which the event which with an 80 to 100 player events it's not such a big deal um, right. but they're you know they have kind of the the higher table rooms or the the higher caliber players are in one room you know if mm. you're in the top third of the event you know you're in the library and you know right. they 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 like that so Right, and you did mention that sports score catapulted Jason to the top. So that's an interesting thing because my idea of sports scores is that, you know, most people are all right dudes, right? So with a section, with an exception of a handful of people who will probably get lower sports score, I think a huge majority will sort of get similar sports scores. And so what, pushes a player to have much higher sports scores than the crowd, you know? Like, is he... Because is he a super clean player or is he someone nice to hang out with, you know? Because in terms of sportsmanship, I do think that, you know, as long as you are very clean, you are very courteous to your opponent, that should be enough to get you the top sports score. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that sports scores, and to clarify what we did at Bug Eater is mm-hmm. you have kind of your general checklists. Were they on time? Did they have the materials? Did they give you a list? We expect all those checkboxes to be made. But then there's a, a question or you, you vote for your favorite opponent at the end right. uh, of, of the event. And I, I always think of sports scores as it's not easy to define what sportsmanship is mm-hmm. and it should truly be the, the player's choice of just pretty much flat out. Who would you like to like of the players you played, who 
was your favorite? Who would you like to play against again is the way I personally look at it. Mm. And a lot of factors go into that. And a lot of them are different for different players. For me personally, clean, tactical, and intentional gameplay is really the key. And then on top of that, I usually favor opponents where it was a closer game. So if, if it was a game where they blew me out of the water or vice versa, usually those are kind of scrapped in my book for my personal vote. But, you know, some people don't look at it that way and they look for other things. And then, you know, for me, the kind of the tiebreakers are the off the table, you know, socially. So I, I hang out a lot with Jason and he's just a fun guy, a great guy. So if it was, you know, I, I could see Jason getting a lot of these because he does check a lot of those boxes for me. And then if it was a tie, like there's very few people that I would say I would want to hang out without off the table over Jason. So right. So I, for me, the way I look at it and what I see out of Jason, I, it makes sense to me why he got good sports right. votes or many multiple people voting for him, which, you know, off the top of my head of his five games, I think he had four of his five opponents saying, I would want to play this, you know, he was my favorite game. So, you know, when four out of your five guys are saying that and also when you're beating the majority of those guys too it's i think it's pretty impressive to get a sports score especially if you've beaten somebody by quite a bit and he's playing elves and people typically have a stigma against elf players and elves in general so i i think that you know a lot of those biases natural biases kind of come into and when you see somebody get those votes, even despite that, it, it really kind of shows that they were deserving of that, those votes, in my opinion. Right. Great. So the Bug Eater tournament run in the high school and the high, the, the high school students volunteers at the events, right, to do the logistics and all? Yes. So it, it's a it's a fundraiser for the drama and debate clubs in the high school. So part part of that is getting those drama and debate club members involved in the setup, the teardown, and the logistics of the event. So there's somebody managing them or telling them where they're needed, what they need to do, but it, it's pretty great when you have a dozen kids that you can say, I need all these chairs moved to here and, right. you know, child labor as it might be, but it it's, it's for a good cause. So. Yeah. I, I, I must imagine it raises a significant sum of money for their clubs. It, it definitely does. So something that I wasn't able to provide for masters that, that all, I'll provide over the podcast here for the first time every year for bug eater. We say, you know, how much we raised for those clubs and off the top of my head, I think this year it was close to about $4,4,500, something like that going to the the clubs for the school. Well, masters Uh, for bug eaters. That's for bug eater. And every year, you know, that's, that's pretty common every year. We've slightly increased as we've grown 
And, you know, we kind of stalled out with COVID and lesser numbers in general, but we're picking right back up. I think this year was the biggest 40K year since COVID. So, and then for masters though, we raised $2,400 just for our Kings of War guys alone. So Mm. we had 108 players and, you know, between the uh, which food was included in that ticket price so we were able to really you know after all of our expenses for the food and everything else that we we had to to do we, we were able to get $2400 for the debate and drama club right that's very impressive so they did volunteer or help to run the event at masses as well yes they did so they were moving tables, moving chairs, helping serve the lunches, you know, any anything that we kind of needed as far as, you know, those mundane tasks, they were they were able to be utilized. What does what's the final turnout for masters and best of the rest combined? Combined we had 108 players, so 64 for masters, 44 for best of the rest. So currently the largest Kings of War event in the world. That's right. Until Clash of Kings UK, from what I hear, but I know from firsthand experience with Masters, there's always that attrition right at the very end, you know, the couple weeks leading up to it. I always estimate or plan for about five to 10% attrition rate. Right. And that's about what we hit for Masters. At one point, we were over 120 signed up mm-hmm. for Masters. And I think the week leading into Masters, we actually lost, I think it was eight players in total. Right. So some travel issues to the the day, day before the event, we lost two Masters players to travel. So we had to backfill with Best of the Rest. I believe there were two players from Best of the Rest that were sick leading up to that week. So they weren't right. able to come. So, you know, un- unfortunate, unforeseeable things, but... They they definitely happen. Right. So if you were to summarize, what do you think of how Masters went? Just a quick few lines about it. So I think, you know, I'll, I'm going to start with the, the opportunities for us first. I think that biggest opportunity was definitely the the scoring system not working as we were hoping, which led to delays. And uh, I think that we, you know, I I would like to say, I wish we could test it more and whatnot, but we I felt very confident going into the event with the tests that we had run that we were ready for it. But, you know, some unfortunate things happened with that leading to delays that, just frankly don't look good for for us and for our region as a whole not not what we want out of the event at all but i believe that we did overcome those well by guaranteeing the results that we got were results in the end like mm-hmm. making sure that we had accurate data and information outside of the logistics of the event i think that we provided what we wanted, which was a different experience for masters, but to a high quality still. So what I mean by that is typically every other masters leading up to this has been in a a hotel venue that Mm. you don't, you don't have to leave the site. 
And I think one thing that's really been going around and talked about extensively with the master's council as a whole is the expectations of that going forward. It might not be possible. The cost of the events to run at a hotel venue post-COVID is just astronomical. It is unrealistic to expect to pay what we're paying for an event and to get everything that we've gotten in the past. So Mm -hmm. as those costs go up, we need to either adjust or we need to also raise the costs to provide those services. So we provided a separate hotel and a separate venue and a separate gaming venue in order to save on costs. But we wanted to guarantee the ability to congregate. One of the biggest things about Masters is meeting new people, getting to hang out with them, getting to experience what it's like at these other regions. So the biggest success, I think, for our event was the hospitality room that we had at the hotel, where we rented out an entire business room that typically, you know, 50, 60 plus people can can be in and we just stocked a bunch of coolers full of beer and liquor and said hey guys this is complimentary come in here drink have fun play games board games and just hang out and you know talk to each other and that i think was a, a huge success so definitely not an original idea i i will call out that we You know, we've taken a lot of different things from other previous masters. So we definitely took this one from the Seattle event, but we just took it to the next level is all. And I was very proud of that. And then a couple other logistical things that I think we really nailed was providing shuttles for out of town players. So they didn't have to get an Uber from the hotel, from the airport Airport. to the hotel And then also utilizing that same kind of community for car rides to get from the hotel to the venue that we're playing at, since we obviously aren't in that spot. So, you know, making sure people had rides was was a big thing on our list. And I think we, we nailed that as well. How do you coordinate that? Do you have just a group chat for all the players? So... A lot of that was just me personally. So I I had actually, Tim was a big help with this part, but I had Tim just create a, uh, a Google form. So a survey where people filled out their information as far as, you know, what airlines they were on, when they're flying in, when they're departing, things like that. So I actually got all the data and then I just organized it and grouped people. So there's three people coming in within an hour of each other. I'm going to put them in a group and then I'm going to, you know, ask local players, Hey, I have a group of three people that need to be picked up at this time. Anybody available? If they're available, I just connect them all together and let them all talk. And then I go to the next group and just keep doing that down the list. So in the end, it, it worked out. It worked out very well. Everybody got a ride. Everybody got got to and from the airport. So, you know, if they didn't, they've been in Omaha for several weeks, and I haven't heard anything. So, <laughs> all right, yeah. Next thing I'll talk about is oh, like, do you have the FOMO of not being able to play this year? No, I I think I 
I, I actually think I took the harder route of not playing and running the event. And I know that Travis and I talk quite extensively together because Travis, as many people know, is a, a player that is very well qualified and could easily be a U.S. master, mm -hmm. uh, but isn't. And I, I felt like when I, I told Travis initially, you know, when we decided we were going to be putting in a bid and running masters, I was telling him that he should be the one to play between the two of us. Like I told him, Hey, I'm, I'm good with running it. I want you to play. I want you to get in there and, you know, do, do us proud. And he's, you know, saying the same thing right back to me where he's like, no, man, I'm good. You won last year. You need to give people a chance to beat you this year. You know, <laughs> he, so we both definitely looked at it more from a perspective of the event running the events to the highest quality possible was more important for both of us versus playing in the event and trying to compete in that way. There, there's only one out of every eight years potentially we'll have the opportunity to run the event. So we can, we can play in seven out of those eight years instead. Right. The next thing is about the terrain. Now, you might have heard this. There are a few people who commented that the terrain pieces were small. So uh, you've been a well-traveled player. What, what do you think of those comments? I mean, I, I could definitely see that perspective. I don't think that's a, you know, an invalid point of view at all. I think the big thing is that the, the, comments on terrain and and even you know paint judging there, there's there seems to be a trend no matter what masters it is there's always going to be comments on certain things and terrain is is one of those i've found i don't think we can make everybody happy when it comes to terrain i will say that the terrain that we put on the tables was in my opinion great as far as the quality it was printed for masters the first time that it was ever used was on masters because our goal with terrain wasn't to make people happy on the size of the terrain it mm. was to make people happy when it came to the consistency so what i mean by that is a complaint that i felt we were able to address in our masters from that has happened in previous masters was people saying that if I was playing on this table, I would have, I would have won my game because the terrain was different on that table. Mm -hmm. So something that was done was map packs where every table had the same terrain in the same place across all the tables. But the Roughly issue the that, same size as well. Right. And the issue with that was at least the last year it was done in Seattle that some of those terrain pieces were different sizes based off what table you actually were on. So even though they were supposed to be the same place in the same terrain, the size of the terrain varied, making it to where it actually isn't the same board that you're playing on on this table compared to the table next to you. So our key focus was to fix both of those things to where mm -hmm. the terrain was uniform sizes were the same across all 32 tables so every player would have played on the exact table whether they were playing on table one or table 32 and i guarantee the terrain was the exact same size down to a millimeter because that's what 
Tim Malonis told me was the error rate was a millimeter of size difference on on the base of the terrain. Wow. So, so I I guess it's not that I don't think those complaints are you know unjustified. I I think that our focus just was not on making people happy when it came to the size of the terrain. Our focus was on making sure that it was the most consistent. even. Yeah, most consistent terrain when it came to a Masters game. Right. But to you, the terrain pieces were normal-sized. They're not considered yes. small to you, right? Yeah, that, that's probably the other point I missed in my long rant. And sorry if I keep rambling on here, but yeah, you cut me off fine. anytime. <laughs> but yes, the terrain sizes were very consistent with the, the mountain region as a whole. So I find that the mountain region and a majority of the Midwest region, the Minnesota side of things that we get to frequently, has terrain sizes that are very similar to what we had at Masters. So, right. but... I will say when I go down to the South, so Texas tournaments, I do see a difference. And when I went to Lady of the Lake, even in Duluth, Minnesota, the sizes of the terrain there are enormous in comparison. But I do know Lady being so fresh in my mind, I do know Lady of the Lake, the number of pieces are significantly lowered, though. Mm. So when we're used to playing with like 10 to 12 pieces here, it's more like eight pieces of terrain there. It's just all eight of those pieces are inflated. Right. Do you come up with your own maps or do you use Epic Dwarf or? For Masters, we, we, we did a little bit of both. So it was based off Epic Dwarf and then adjusted or changed just because right. Epic Dwarfs are so commonly used. We didn't want people to look at this and be like, oh, I've played on this terrain five, 10, 20 different times. I I know this one like the back of my hand. We, we adjusted it slightly. You know, mm-hmm. a couple things, maybe even a little controversial where on one of the maps, a hill was in the deployment zone by three inches which some regions and some people say that there should be no hills in deployment zones ever at any point in time but to kind of counteract that it was the invade scenario i think so if you're going to sit on a hill that was in your deployment zone you're not playing towards the scenario then anyway so some of those things were very consciously thought out in the process of the the maps right and for masters, is it always just plain vanilla scenarios out of the book? Yes. Yeah. Masters has always done book scenarios. The only changes with masters has been the scoring system. I would say blackjack is almost the the norm, which is what we played this year. Uh, but we did vote. So every year we vote for these things and it changes based off of public opinion, which is you know, a democracy of regional regions get polled and asked, it goes up to the regional chair and then the regional chair votes. And of the eight votes from the regional chairs, that's what's decided on based off majority votes. So, right. Yeah. So, but we feel the, the scenarios out of the book are most common and the, the most fair, I would say. Right. The terrain pieces were 3D printed, FDM printed, or yes. resin, right? FDM, yep. 
So with so with such a big tournament and so so many new pieces of terrain printed, what do you do with them after the tournament? Because you won't expect to be hosting such a big tournament in 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 the foreseeable future, right? Yeah, we're actually recycling some of our older terrain from Bug Eater mm. in order to utilize a lot of these pieces because the quality of the terrain it was just a, a huge jump. You know, fresh paint on it, fresh designs. And every another thing, big shout out to Tim Lonis for this, but every table of terrain at Masters was different. So it wasn't 32 tables of the exact same building on every table. Every table had a different theme. So there were there was a terrain for like an elf table with like overgrown trees into buildings. And there was, you know, a farmland table with like a big windmill instead. And it, so it was, it was something that I did not ask for, but Tim took that upon himself to say, there's no reason we need to duplicate terrain pieces here. So, so there different teams, but same size footprints. Exactly. Yes. That's impressive. That's impressive, man. <laughs> yeah. So, so we got, you know, 32 tables worth of fresh terrain and we, we there was still good quality terrain, but I think we, Russ Barnes here in town, that's Grant Barnes's dad. He's the, the terrain man when it comes to Omaha and, he he says i think it was like 40 tables to 45 tables of terrain that he's keeping in storage and ready to go for tournaments mm. uh, and then the some of the stuff he recycled out we've moved into the game store so we got better terrain now at the local game store for our weekly games so right. it's and then we can kind of throw out some of the old you know cardboard buildings that have been dropped a few too many times <laughs> Yeah, I've seen their better days for sure. Yeah, I always thought, I mean, I've never run or seen such a big event before, but I think the logistics of it, right, in terms of the terrain, the physical tables, the game mats on top of the tables, like how are we going to get so many and what do we do with them after the event is over? Yeah, I do think that uh, I do have some ideas around it, but although I don't know how feasible that is, one of the ideas I thought was to have players bring their own game mats and terrain so that you can pool your terrain together and then they can bring it home afterwards, right? Because it's their own personal one. Yeah, that's and I think that's a great way to get an event started without, you know, committing yeah. to a large, large overhead when it comes to getting the mats for a tournament, getting the terrain, because it's not cheap to to do that as a tournament organizer by any means right <laughs> i will say that mats were something that we outsourced and brought in we we had quite a few mats but i think we brought in 15 mats from other other clubs and then we also were able to borrow or bring over mats from other game systems for bug eater having access to age of sigmar mats so we we included those into our so there's still a fantasy mat of the appropriate size. Is is AOS still six by four or is it going on the weird GW size? You know, I don't know if AOS went to the new size, but the, the mats that they have currently at least are the six, six by, by four, four right. still, the, the older ones. So I mean honestly, I just 
you know, a little selfish here maybe, but I would love it if they did, then we could just take over all the AOS mats here locally. Oh, uh, we don't need that, you don't need these mats anymore. I'll yeah, just... you, you don't need them, just hand them right over. No big deal. So <laughs> right. Yeah, that was one of the ideas I had was to have the community bring the terrains and mats. And I guess one of the things people might be afraid of is if their their precious terrain pieces get damaged. At the tournament, that will be something that's hard to account for. Or so another thing that I have in mind is to do do an auction or something to sell off the pieces of terrain at the end of the tournament. Mm. Even those that you made, if you had a lot of extra, you could always sell sell some of them away, charity, donate it to you know, go go to go into the fundraiser or something like that. Yeah, that could be yeah another solution to get rid of excess so so or so if you ask players to bring you know bring terrain that you don't mind auctioning off at the end of the event then that could be another thing yeah yeah i you say that and i i did go to one event it's been years ago now but it was an event out of wichita kansas called border wars Mm-hmm. And the the guy that ran that, his name was Michael Michael Gradowski, and he was one of the the very early on adopters of three D printers. And this was their first year running the event, and so he three D printed terrain just for the event. He painted it all up himself, and at the end of the event, uh, without even advertising this beforehand, at the end of the event, you know he they had a ton of stuff that they were just giving away. And he just called out, he said, oh, and by the way, any of that terrain that you guys see on the table you were playing on, feel free to take that home. Wow. Right. So the guy that I was playing against like looks at me and he's like, did did you want any of this? And I'm like, I mean, I, I think I'm good. Just knowing that I don't have anywhere to store it at the time and everything. And he's like, Oh, that's great. And he like picks up all the pieces of terrain and gets like a box and he just he takes the whole table of terrain home. Right. It was funny. So so I have seen that be done, but uh, you know, it's a cool idea. Maybe you could, you know, include that in like the ticket price entry. So you have a as a tournament organizer would have some more overhead, some more money up front then you don't necessarily have to auction it off, but you just have that as part of your selling point for the event that, you know, the terrain is going to be available for people to take home at the end and you just get paid up front for that then. Yeah, just some element to give the the terrain away, whether it's to give or to auction or to sell it off. Yeah, I could imagine maybe even Rob Fanuf would be very excited to create the terrain to bring to the event so that people would appreciate and take it home. Yeah, no, that that's a good idea. I think you would get a lot of people in the community excited about something like that. So yeah, you could even say, hey, you, you could design a table for us, including the team and the 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 mat, the, the design of the mat that is being played on. Player sourced. Yeah, with that, with that terrain conversation out of the way, let's talk about the master's results. Were you surprised by the top, the top few tables, the top players, and the eventual winner itself, Luke? 
I mean, if anybody says they weren't surprised by Luke, I'm I'm gonna probably call some bullshit on him, honestly. <laughs> so I think that Luke even said he was, you know, he's surprised by it. So not because he couldn't do it necessarily, but just because of the way it happened and in the field that he played against, against the odds that he was kind of against. It it really was a, you know, an underdog story, I think, from mm. beginning to end. And you know, he, he got the right matchups he needed. He played the right scenarios at the right times in those matchups. And a lot of times with masters, you need a, you need some of that stuff. You need a little bit of luck, but you know, kind of, I've already told him this with some, some of the things he said as to reasonings, you know, why, you know, he won masters and maybe he shouldn't have is that I, I don't think there's ever going to be an accidental master. And what I mean by that is I don't think somebody can go through and win that tournament without being deserved of those wins. So he, even though he might've had some fortunate breaks, some good luck in certain spots, he absolutely had to play his ass off in every single one of those games and play perfectly because I know that he played six players that could have won the event if he Mm. didn't play perfectly and, you know, from personal experience, I'll shout out his last opponent, Nathan Clevenger, who has been at the top table the past two years at Masters. You know, so if he wins either one of those two years, he's a U.S. Master himself. And, you know, it, that's the quality of player you're, you're playing against in every game at Masters is somebody that could win this event. And, and I truly believe that. So... You know, congratulations to Luke again. He he played extremely well, and he showed everybody that you don't have to take you know the broken list or the the meta army or even a a meta game game strategy or shooting like a shooting army or you know a defense six army. He played a very well rounded Trident Realm army that has very unique tools in the list and he played it to the highest capability and that's what it takes is you need to play your list to the highest capability and you need to get a little luck on the on the way but if you can't do the first step you're definitely not going to be at you know at the podium at masters right and i know before masters being the to you shouldn't have a pick of favorite but who was now that Masters is over? Who was your favorite to? Who do you think not not your favorite, but who do you think had the highest chance to win it? And yeah, as of your thoughts before Masters happened. No, that's a good question because I I was asked that leading up to Masters, and I kept that pretty close to the chest. So I was actually down between two players, and the reason I was down between two players is because I felt one of them would win it if they if these two players did not play each other and then i felt the other one would win if they did end up having to play each other mm. so my two my two picks going into it were and probably unsurprisingly here but jeff radigan and dustin howard right and i i easily could have seen either one of them pulling it out and and winning the event Mm -hmm. Uh, just because I know that they can play their army that they took to the highest quality of anybody else playing that army. 
Right. Did they face each other in the tournament? They did not. They Right. both met an unfortunate end in a brick wall, and that brick wall was named Jeff Shulkin uh, from Minnesota, who I will say was also in my top five pick with the, the Masters Fantasy Draft, which big thanks to Matt for putting that together. That was a lot of fun. So I, I definitely see why they both lost to Jeff, and he, he was playing an ogre army. That was very finely tuned, and he's been playing that army for over a year. And actually, you know, again, shameless plug, but if you want to watch a YouTube video, I was the only person that has beaten him with that army leading up to this event, or even after this event. He said in the past 30 games or something ridiculous, mm -hmm. I played him round two at Depticon. Right. So he... He has a ridiculous record with that army and just plays it lights out. So I think the only reason I won is because I, you know, did something that he wasn't expecting me to do. And I squeaked out this win on scenario, but I definitely did not win in attrition. <laughs> so it was one of those, of you know, try to take that minor win and just run, <laughs> run with it. I was I wasn't sure if Jeff Shukin with his ogre army, right? He faced off against Jeff Radigan's Scotch Wings list in a prior tournament and lost. Was that what happened? No, My memory's a bit fuzzy on that. Yeah, no, the Jeffs haven't played each other previously, but I know that Dustin Howard and Jeff Radigan played against each other in the last round of Lone Wolf. And Jeff was playing the Scorch Wings, but Dustin was playing a Shooting Rats list. And Dustin ended up beating Jeff in that game, I believe, if if memory serves me right. <laughs> but Jeff had has been performing too well in the prior games that catapult him to. Did he win first Uh, place? I can't remember. he did not. Right. Dustin Howard did win first place at that one, and Right. then I think because of the loss, Jeff dropped just below for the best general. Uh, Right. so. Another great Texas player, Jesse Garrett, won best general for that event. Right, right. All right. So, so what do you think of this Scotch Wing spam? I, I think it's a lot more fragile than people realize, actually. I do think that the real core and the key to winning with that list is the patience that Jeff plays it with. and the understanding of the scenarios and the the capability of his army when it comes to those scenarios. I I do know and I did get to see firsthand Jeff Radigan and Jeff Shulkin play off and I know they were playing in the plunder scenario and the only reason Radigan lost that is because he made a mistake in the understanding of his army. and how it plays against Shulkin's army in that scenario. And, and Jeff and I, Radigan and I, have actually talked about this after the fact, but if he didn't make that mistake, I think that Radigan could have won that game, which I think changes the, the field for Masters by quite a bit. I do think that Luke, you know, if it ended up being Luke playing against Radigan and the Scorchwing, I don't think that Luke would like that matchup very well. You know, depends on the scenario and everything, obviously. But in general, I don't think it's a favorable matchup. 
Yeah. With that, let's talk about Luke's list. You would think that Trident Realms naturally have a weakness against shooting, right? So he does, but I do think his list shores up that problem quite a bit in his unit choices, right? Yeah, absolutely. He it's not it's not gonna just you know face a shooting army and be like, well, that's game. <laughs> right. He, he plays yeah, because, probably the best build of Trident Realms to face against shooting. Right, because there's Tachyderms, which are defense 6 against shooting, two hordes of Gigas, which are defense 6 from the front, and defense 5 even not from the front. Knuckles have Stealthy. Coral Giant is defense 5. And the tools, they all have Stealthy, don't they? So... There's quite a lot in the list that has some sort of tech against shooting, be it high defense or stealthy. So at least I wouldn't say it's built to win shooting, but it's built to weather against shooting with that in mind. So Yeah, and I, I agree. I think against a normal shooting army, the Luke's Trident Realms do just fine. I think the big key difference against Radigan's army is that not only is it a shooting list, but it's also an alpha strike. Yeah. And when you combine those two, it makes it makes it to where your opponent has to come towards you. But if they come towards you, they're exposing flanks likely because there's so many flying boards around the board. And then a big, key component to Jeff's list that people may not realize is those two centaur hordes have to be able to hit hit a front of something and they will just destroy a bunch of stuff so even those gigas at defense six in the front you know they they're not loving life when it comes to a a horde of centaurs and even mm-hmm. if they survive, Gigas with their 12 attacks aren't really going to do a whole lot to a horde of centaurs. So mm-hmm. you're you're put in this predicament where you're going to be losing units eventually to the shooting. But then you're also going to be losing units first when it comes to the alpha strike. So when you're losing units in two key aspects of the game first it's really hard to come back from that as as the, in this list there you know if he had 20 plus drops it's okay to you know like goblins it's okay to lose in both of those as long as you have enough stuff to survive to counter to you know counter shoot and return but luke's list would not not have enough units to take a punch on both fronts All right with that, I'm going to throw something a little bit controversial here. Do you think that Kings of War, and especially at Masters, right, there's too many random elements, right, between the matchups, getting the correct matchups, the correct, getting the correct matchups at the correct scenario, and with the variance of the dice rolls? Is, it, is there too many random elements to consistently predict a winner? Because... U.S. Masters, the Master has been different every year, hasn't it? So, like, yeah, yeah, there's just a little bit, like, unlike chess, right? The best player will always win. But because Kings of War, there are elements of randomness. 
and that because the it's not a lot, right? The best players still come out on top, but it's too random to have one decided winner that you know this guy is his skill level is above the rest, so he's always gonna be predicting predicted to win. Yeah, I well I agree that there are too many random factors to be able to decide a victor. You can definitely put a group of people in that, but you know, then you still run into the situation we had where Luke was not in a group that was talked about leading up to it. I I don't think that Kings of War should change or should be less random because the the way in which we calculate you know the the master is you you have to be the best player on that weekend you know with against the matchups that you played against because in order to get to that you know perfect outcome if you don't mind me saying mm-hmm. it would be everybody would have to play the same army I don't think there's a way you can justifiably decide who the best player is without first starting off with everybody has the same army. It, it's just chess at that point, right? Everybody right. starts with the same pieces, but then you run into, you know, the dice rolls. Well, if we get rid of the dice rolls, then there's, you know, there's no randomness. So nobody would do anything without it being adva- advantageous to them. And then in this game, like it it would just turn into chess where a draw would likely be the outcome uh, right. if you're really you know come down to it so now kings of war is beautiful in the way that it is because you you have so many factors and so many things to consider that brings into the game that what actually a win a loss and a draw is and I, I don't think that it needs to be changed as a whole. I do think we can always improve upon how we accurately accurately come to the best player, whether that's changing the, the scenario to have a better accurate outcome of, you know, was this a win or was this, you know, a closer win? You know, so the numbers that we get out of the, the scenario and the outcome. I think that, you know, changing that is perfectly fine. I also, you know, even consider the possibility of do we take the the battle points as really the first and final outcome where you could have theoretically somebody that won all six of their games at Masters and then somebody that won five games and lost one or won five games and had a draw but had more battle points in the end than the person that was undefeated. How do we, do we, you know, right now we determine strictly off battle points. Is that the right way? I don't know. Mm. You, you know, that's up for discussion, I think, because in the past there has been a master player that had a worse win-loss draw record than somebody and still won the event. So I, I think that, you know, at the time, that's the way we were scoring it. So there's definitely no way we could go back and change the results. But, you know, is that an accurate description of the master in the end? And I I think that what we have right now and the masters that we've had in the past are accurately described. I don't I wouldn't change any any of those people at this point. 
but I'm definitely open to discussions and to how do we want to, you know, judge who is the best player in the room on that weekend for the next year. And I think there's, it's just a great game and there's many different ways to do it. And I, I don't think there's ever going to be a perfect answer and I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. At the end, we're just playing for, for bragging rights, right? Because right. we're not playing for a million dollars cash price over here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you guys knew, but after winning masters, I got a million dollar signing bonus into, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the Kings of War hall of fame legacy league. You know, I don't know. <laughs> just making shit up now. <laughs> right. So with that, I'm going to, have two last topics to discuss. So what do you think of the new Night Stalkers and Northern Alliance 2023 version? You have played against Northern Alliance 2023 at Lady of the Lake. Have you played against the new Night Stalkers? I haven't played against the new Night Stalkers, but you know, playing Night Stalkers for a good period of time and having a pretty decent grasp on the army as a mm-hmm. whole I think that the changes are are good, refreshing because it. The key thing I liked is that it opened up a different play style with Night Stalkers, which includes the Ravengers for a, a core shooting element. I mm-hmm. don't think I don't think anything in the army is necessarily broken or overpowered in any way. I know there was a, a big direct comparison to Boomers and these guys. And I actually really love some of the comments that I saw. I forget if it was Jesse Garrett or Jeff Radigan who pointed out that, you know, people that were making that comparison, they he, he commented that you're comparing the, you know, saying that this unit is better than this other unit, the boom. So the Ravengers are better than the boomers, but the boomers are a bad unit. So, you know, if, why would they want to bring a new unit out that is as good as a bad unit, you know, with the idea that, you know, these underpower units, these units that aren't being taken should see some love. They should get, you know, buffed, it, you know, eventually, whether that's this Clash of Kings, fourth edition, whenever that drops, you know, I, I and I agreed with that point of view because it wasn't like there was a huge jump. It was, you know, in my mind, maybe a five, at most like a 10 point difference in rules. But I also am, I'm not seeing, you know, the list or the boogeyman, you know, list of, you know, 10 Ravenger hordes or something like that right now. I I just don't think they are a unit that's worth spamming. Yeah if you're looking to really play competitively at high levels. So, but I do like what they bring to the Night Stalker army in the form of the shooting. So, and then I think, you know, my personal favorite was actually the, the leapers or what, what did they end up calling them? Are they stalkers or? Oh, I don't even remember, but they, they are the guys yeah. with the leap rule, right? Yeah, the they they they're kind of similar to Reapers, but they they have flying and Strider, and they're they're an infantry unit. So I I personally like those guys, but I they're kind of expensive in the regiment size. So I actually really like a troop of those guys. But 
that's just you know my personal take tormentors i'll eventually get around to playing tormentors yeah yeah those guys <laughs> yeah i think a lot of people commonly say like the, the troop is the max that i'll bring but even when you bring a troop it's a very fragile piece for 140 points they do have the periscope rule that makes them able to see over other units hang on got a call gonna message it back okay all right yeah, I, I wouldn't call boomers bad. <laughs> I guess they are not suitable in the current meta, but they're a decent unit in itself, just that it's not it's not the right choice in the current competitive meta, I'd say. I agree. And I think ogres have a lot of good units, or not a lot units that have more utility that are more useful than the boomers. And I think that's more likely as to why they get less playtime. Mm -hmm. uh, do you lament the loss of the Spectres? Do you think the Spectres could have been a unit that's, that gets fixed in terms of the rules rather than dropped entirely? You know, I think it definitely could have been fixed for rules, but... I know that that was that was a company's decision. So Mantic as a company decided they did not want to continue with the Spectres. And I think a big reason why was because they didn't produce models for them or the models they were producing, they were reallocating. I yeah, they were the... reallocating it to the doppelgangers. So they decided right. to use them to work it the, the Spectre half of the dual kit to represent doppelgangers instead. And with that, I'm looking at the list. I think the entire list is fleshed out in terms of model range, except for some of the legendary guys. The Portal of Despair isn't doesn't right. have a representative model. I think that's the only one right now. Everything else have models? Yeah, everything else have models. Yeah, it Personally, if I were, uh, from a thematic point of view, if I were to choose between Spectres and Doppelgangers, I think Doppelgangers are a clear choice to have in an army. I just think they're so unique and yeah. they're they're very playable as well that, that they didn't need a rules change either. Mm -hmm. So if I were to drop one of those two, I, I would have made the same decision personally. And, and I think they definitely could have fixed Spectres, but when you're adding in a different unit that brings a shooting element to the list, I, I also see the appeal of there's really not a need to fix them when you have this other unit that's going to take their spot in the, effectively in gameplay as well. So mm -hmm. I, I don't mind the change at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the Night Stalkers didn't get as big as a change as a Northern Alliance. So let's talk about Northern Alliance. They were a decent army before. They do you think they got better overall with the changes? I it's tough to say because I, I think Northern Alliance absolutely was a good army before. I think there's clear evidence of that in even tournament results. 
but the changes that were made, it, it's kind of a balancing act because the I think the biggest downsizing in the list is the Huskarls, you know, the yeah, Huskarls uh, <laughs> not being a unit, and then now they're the the Hearthguard limited upgrade, upgrade too. The the yeah. the Travis build was basically nerfed. Yeah, which I don't I don't think their intent was to nerf Travis's build by any means. But it was just one of those things that I, I don't really like how it ended up as far as a, a choice of the, the units going into a limited legend and an upgrade. And it's even still a heavy infantry size coming from an infantry unit. It, it's just messy, and I think it definitely could have been done in a much cleaner way. And I think Mantic as a whole may have dropped the ball on that particular part of it. However, I think that's the only kind of downside of all these changes. I, I do think every other change was a was a good change and was an interesting adjustment because when i look at the army i don't see a clear build i know that again you know i don't really take i don't really have faith in a lot of opinions that that come up on fanatics but i do want to point out that when these frostclaw riders were introduced and <laughs> fanatics blew up and was going like saying, you know, power creep, power creep, you know, the, these, this unit is broken and all this. And I, I stayed out of it, but you know, every time I saw it, I just kept thinking, have you looked at the price tag for these things? Like, they're, yeah, they're, once you... they're 40 points more than uh, Scotch wings before the shooting, you add yeah. the shooting, they are 55 points more. Yeah. You get extra one tundras. And Fury just, built in, but right. Yeah. I, I'm just like that's, you know, 200 point scorch wings definitely shouldn't be a gold standard. I, I think they're definitely going to get changed in the next Clash of Kings mm -hmm. because they are too good. But so they're getting nerfed, and I think if they went to a you know a price point similar to these guys, like nobody would pick up a scorch wing unit again, right? <laughs> it's just. It's just kind of no brainer to me, but you know, I, I think I don't. I think that you will see the unit. I don't think it's going to be a bad unit, but you're not going to see a spam of this unit. You're going to maybe see a couple regiments, maybe one horde in a list, but you're never going to see three hordes, four hordes of these, or or more mm -hmm. in a, in an army. I yeah. think the the biggest win was actually the character version of that guy, the the Raven Raven Diver character. I forget what he's called. Frostclaw Claw Champion. Claw. Yes, yes, thank you. I like him quite a bit. I've always been a fan of the Skylords, though, and he reminds me, you know, stat-wise a little bit of the Gekata Skylord. Sky yeah. yeah, so... You know, I might be just a little biased on some of those things, but I think you will see that guy brought in play, but I don't think you're going to see three of them because Northern Alliance is flush with great characters and it's going to be really tough to unlock three of those guys plus, you know, the yeah. handful of other characters you want Lord to Lord on Frostfang, Harim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Harim for sure. Like, 
if I see a Northern Alliance army without Harim, I'm going to question the sanity of the player. (laughs) You know, like by all means, if you don't want to play Harim, don't, you don't have to play him. But if you look at the points, like he is extremely good. And I, I'm actually a big fan of living legends should be uh, maybe not an auto include, but they should have a clear advantage for that unit, that play style. And I think he just, Harim just fits all the checks, all the boxes with the new Northern Alliance here that you would want. So I don't see really a build that wouldn't want Harim to, to, you know, complement it. Right. Yeah, I do think Harim's, did the Frost Giant get Fury? So that makes them a little bit more comparable to Harim. Yeah, I th- think I, they had no fury before. Let me just correct. Check. No, you, you're definitely correct on that because yeah. that was something that, for those that don't know, Paige and I are actually play testers, uh, mm-hmm. and in the play testing process, that was definitely a suggestion that I brought up, just because I feel like all giants should have kind of these core universal things of. Uh, fury feel i feel like is one of those and then you know their nerve and then a crushing four like all of those should yeah all of those should just be kind of the core to a giant no matter what variant of giant it is so with the fury i think that giants you know how it synergizes with the northern alliance list with the chilling presence and even with its, you know, icy breath attack that it gets to, I think it's quite a good and appealing option now, even though it yeah. is a little pricey. I, I just think it's still going to be worth it in the end. Right. Okay, one last thing to talk about. What do you think of the... You have been, how, how long have you been playing Kings of War? Yeah... It was after fantasy, so end times was what was that 2020 or 2017, 2018? Is that when we switched over? I think must have been no, about much earlier than that. I started end times happened when I was still playing Warmer Hearts, and I only jumped off to Kings of War in 2015. So end times would probably be 2013 to 2014. Okay, so it was when the end times officially you know the world blew up and everything so it was it was probably 2015 then from what i'm thinking here but yeah so 2015 so we're coming up it's probably been eight years that i've been playing kings of war now yeah so it's been about that i i I hopped over to kings of war shortly after end times that was when warm hearts rushed out third edition to capitalize on end times, but it wasn't a finished product. And even before that, I was already feeling fatigued from Warmer Hearts because it's a heavy gotcha game. So I'm like, nah. <laughs> so what do you think of Warhammer, not Warhammer, Kings of War over these eight years? Hasn't Has it been keeping things fresh enough for older players like us to continue playing and what do you think about its longevity going forward or what do you think is required to spice up the game? Yeah, a good question for sure to to wrap us up here. Mm-hmm. So without going on a huge rant, yes, I think that the game 
for my my personal preference is a great balance of freshness, competitiveness, and then also advancing the rules. You know, eight years ago when I was first starting, the there was like I look back and I'm like, gosh, it was it was a power gaming. Like I felt like you know that first Masters that I went to. You know, undead. I played three undead players, and they had just rock hard lists. You know, I have a va- zombie, or not a zombie. Yeah, a zombie dragon or vampire on zombie dragon that was defense six, and then there was one that was regeneration five up. You know, and like when you didn't waver the unit, like disordering a flyer like that didn't actually ground the flyer. They would just fly over and hit the flank of another unit. So I think back to those things and I, you know, I think if my preferences that I have now, if I were to go to a game and there were those types of things in it, I probably wouldn't have stuck around to play that game, you know, and enjoyed it, it competitively. But the game of Kings of War, I feel like, has evolved and evolved at the appropriate pacing for for most of the rules. I do think there are some things that I've, you know, been vocal on that haven't changed maybe as quickly as I wanted. But in general, I think Kings of War, the rules, and I'm really excited about this new rules committee that we've ha- had since the beginning of the year. I think that they're they're actually listening to player feedback and implementing it appropriately so i do think the game stays fresh enough the the update with clash of kings every year is always great the only year was actually this past year that i felt like the the clash of kings update was just mild there there wasn't enough change in the art in the armies in the game it was more of a balancing act and i felt it at the time playing my night soccer army and granted i was i was ready to put them on the shelf for a while anyway but i definitely saw a huge balance with the units that i had been playing with at that point mm-hmm. but then i felt like they missed a couple of key things that had been you know, screamed at, you know, from fanatics. And I've been vocal on with the air elementals didn't get touched. And it's like, I, I actually felt those were even more egregious than everything else they adjusted, mm. you know, but there, there were a couple additions at that point that kept things kind of, kind of new, kind of fresh. But I think that the yearly update and really exploring everything that that has to offer over the course of an entire season you know a full year is it's great it's just perfect in my mind because the meta even halfway through the year always evolves into something different something that we didn't quite expect i I think there are usually some things that are picked out and you know said but the fact that people are picking up on them and talking about them and you see them on the table then just brings on this whole new aspect to counter those things. So I, I always stay 
engaged and intrigued and i'm always looking for kind of that new thing that you know the hipster of kings of war if you will to (laughs) play something new before other people are playing it or even just you know be a renaissance player and go back to something that's been around forever but people have just forgotten about and try and resurrect it and bring it back so i always try to avoid whatever the meta is and you know i got I probably got caught up in the Night Stalker meta at the time, but I had decided on that army before the the Clash 22 or 21, whichever. Yeah, before that Clash of Kings book came out, I had already decided that was the army I was playing, and it just turned out that Soul Flares got really good, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll add some of those into my <laughs> list, I guess. And the Rift Weavers getting really good at spell what aura yes now i will say though i strongly believe i was the first person playing them and i distinctly remember listening to a counter charge podcast talking about night stalkers and specifically their changes in the clash of kings book and both nathan clevenger and joey greek said that the horror riff weavers were very good they liked the changes but they don't see them ever getting played or they personally would never play them and i was like at that point i'm like i'm taking two boys (laughs) so again i had i had to get my hipster vibe in there so it's it was for those who don't know it was such a strong monster piece for such a low price point it's scoring and on top of that it gave her army white protection against shooting i mean it's a six inch aura but then taking two of them you cover most of your army yeah it it was the key piece to that army that i played and won masters with because you know that was the year that banner of the abbot shire was also introduced into the game so everybody had spell ward available to them if they wanted but I had I didn't have to pay for a magic item, having it built into my units and being able to have more than one. And it covers, I would say, the biggest weakness to Night Stalkers, which is lightning spell bolt. protection, lightning bolts specifically. Absolutely. But natu- naturally with lightning bolt being lightning bolt was less of a an issue at that point in time because everybody had spell ward, it felt like. Hmm. So not many people heavily invested into a lightning bolt style army either so i think that really played a key factor into my army doing so as well as it did yeah for myself i think about kings of war longevity right i think one of the key there are two key aspects of the game that is difficult to makes it difficult for players to get into one of course is the model count so that is something that's a little bit hard to fix because it is supposed to be a grand ranks and flanks army style game, right? Not a squad or skirmish. So, but of course, I think Mantic is going to relax on their position on preferred model count. So just make it look full. And I think that helps the situation somewhat and Ambush being a, a stepping stone game into big, the big Kings of War game also helps. Another thing that is a characteristic and also the biggest challenge for the game is its ranks and flanks nature. 
we enjoy the positioning of the game, but with ranks, you know, the, the game format of ranks and flanks, the rules for movement is a lot. <laughs> if you compare it to a skirmish game, this guy moves six inches, just measure six inches in any direction and move, right? But for us, it's like, okay, you can move here. You can turn up to 90 degrees once. You have to stay out of one inch of an enemy unless you're charging or unless it's at the end after a charge. So our movement section of the rules is a lot. And even at this stage, it doesn't cover every situation. And there's still moments of confusion and parts that are not clear. So I think there's, uh, although there's still room to improve, but then being the nature that it's a ranks and flanks game, there's got to be because you limit the way things can move. So then there's got to be a lot of rules around that. And I don't know what is the answer necessarily to this, but hopefully as the game evolves, it can be as clean and elegant as it can be. I think there's still room for improvement right now. Like the, the Mantic is up in the air about withdrawal, right? So about the withdrawal rules and how we can, if we remove it or how can we clean it up better? Because when there's no withdrawal, then there's the, the then there's the issue of the wavered units can't reform, right? So that's another problem. Yeah. So then you add another rule to it and then you add another rule to it. And then at, at, at some point, the number of rules just seem a little bit too much. So yeah, so I'm hoping at this front that could be cleaned up. That would really help in the longevity of the game and helping new players get into the game better. Because as experienced players, you know, when, when one extra circumstance, one extra obscure rule in this obscure situation, you know, this rule gets added in. We're like, no problem, I can handle it. But then for a new player, like, what is this rule trying to get at? Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So like, yeah, so and, that's one thing. Yeah, no, I and I agree with everything you just said there, Paige. I think that in the end, I think that the mentality, at least from the people that I've talked to that are part of the rules committee, is they're not looking to add complexities to the game at all. They're mm -hmm. looking to simplify and clarify what's already there. And, you know... So, but I, I don't think it's going to be something that is implemented in a FAQ or a Clash Kings change. I think it has to be the, the next, next edition. edition. Once we get to fourth edition, I, I think those, you know, asks, you know, those pain points that you were describing, I think we can address those at that point. Mm -hmm. And I want to give just one example of a, a feedback that I gave that I think is a very elegant way of answering some of those things that you just brought up. And that's wavering. The, the mechanic of wavering in this game is so detrimental. And in some cases is even more detrimental than losing the unit outright. Yeah. If, if a unit that's wavered and sitting there doing nothing, it, it's in the way of a different unit that could have contributed in the game, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's an elegant way to address this and to clean up some of the rules when it comes to wavering and you're engaged in combat is to make wavering what Devastated currently is. Half your so, attacks. 
right. a unit has half the attacks. It moves at half the speed. It, you know, you could you could even say you give them a minus one to hit with their shooting and and melee ability if if you want to as well. You could you can you know at, play test it. I think is necessary to find what the right balance is. But then you still have all those special rules like Headstrong and Fury that still do what they do currently and allow you to benefit from the unit's full potential instead of half of its potential. But you have a unit that is still doing something at that point instead of sitting there and not doing anything. And I think it also brings balance to the game as far as units that are fearless being a clear beneficiary to the game mm. because wavering is such a huge deal in the game and can can win or lose a game at the right yeah, right because at the right time when the waiver blocks your other units from doing stuff then at that point it becomes worse than getting killed so a wavering shouldn't cost a worse result of being killed right than being killed right. So absolutely. So being able to fight at half strength, at least you can still multi-charge and get out of the way, slide sideways, allow the other unit to come in. That would definitely change the game a lot, but also that kind of makes sense that yeah, you shouldn't make the effects of wavering worse than the effects of getting killed. Of course, it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens often enough that that it is a factor. Right. And and you see, I think. Clearly, you see unit choices being affected by if a unit can or can't waver as well. So if if you have an option of a unit that, say, you want it to be a hammer, something that deals a large amount of damage, and you have an option between a unit that can waver and a unit that doesn't waver, you're going to pick the unit that doesn't waver, even if it costs a little bit more, or even if it has, you know, a little bit of a downside elsewhere, the the waiver key point, in my opinion, is more important than a lot of those other factors that might be taken into play. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah. Another thing that, of course, is the scenarios, right? With after I watched your, some of your videos at Lady of the Lake, of the Lake, I was like, man, we could really use some new scenarios to spice things up. I think the next clash is working on it. Hopefully. Yeah. We've I, I've heard a few rumors. New scenarios. I, I've heard rumors. I haven't seen anything specifically, but if not the next clash, I really hope that fourth edition comes out with fresh new scenarios, but also revising the current scenarios. I think there are some key things in the current scenarios that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. uh, to make the scenario truly competitive and truly a balanced. Let's have some hot takes. While you, which, which are you talking about specifically? Uh, let's let's take the first one off the top of my head. Push. So mm -hmm. I think there needs to be a, fun a fundamental either adjustment to loot tokens in the game. So across all all loot token scenarios, or maybe just in push. But I think those loot tokens can't can't and should not all be put onto a single unit. 
They'll just take them on a single unit, right? Right. I think if you spread them out, you adjust those, you know, whether it's you can put two on a unit or you can only ever have one on a unit, you know, maybe that's a little too far, but I, I would like to see that adjusted. And, you know, you could even go as far if you wanted to add some complexities to consult the unit strength of a unit. So if a unit strength is one or two, it can only carry one token. If a unit is unit strength three or four, it can carry two tokens. Mm. You know, something like that, I think, would be, you know, a minimal complexity, but beneficial in the end. And then I I also have a bone to pick with loot tokens as far as the rules when it comes to what the movement. So your, your movement's reduced to five. Well, with the new Northern Alliance, they have frozen auras all over the place and unit, you know, speed five units are now going to be speed four all over the place and they can't get anywhere. So I think loot tokens should have some benefit even of picking them up. I think no matter what your speed was, you should be speed five. So a dwarf picking it up. It, it's picking up a you know a case of beer and it got you know speed five now <laughs> because it wants to run away with the beer faster. I don't know. You can make up your own reasoning why, but I think a unit should be the speed that it is. It shouldn't be affected by anything. And I think a big key one for me is it should lose the shambling special. That would that would first clean the game up of you don't even have to address then that a unit can't be surged by mm-hmm. when it has a loot token. But then it also actually balances armies that have shambling units. Well, uh, at least it can go at the double. Yes. Exactly. So there's there's nothing worse than having a unit that, you know, was maybe even faster. It gets, re- you know, a Revenant Cav unit that picks up a token. It not only gets its speed reduced from eight to five, but now it can't do anything but move five inches and, and that's it. So... I don't feel like you should be punished for playing the scenario. And, you know, again, I don't feel like you should be punished with the wavering. You know, it should not be more of a punishment to do these things than if you were choosing not to do them. So that, you know, my personal opinion. But again, I I don't expect maybe all of these things to be addressed in the next Clash of Kings or immediately. But I think that a lot of these things can improve the game as a whole and also in a lot of cases simplify the game and i hope that's what we see in fourth edition when whenever that does come what do you think of the loot scenarios where the loot tokens are thrown across the center there's loot and plunder and being able to be picked up on the first turn and you know because there's a whiff in the loot tokens right you can pick it just out of 12 of of the enemy line so that means their speed six unit can't charge you and most things that are above speed six are cavalry or flyers so then it sort of forced the opponent to need to bring some of these so as to not sort of lose out in this loot scenarios i i don't see early token pickups as necessarily an issue i i'm you know, maybe that's just from my personal experience. I, I do usually play with something of elements of a little bit of speed, but I, I don't think you should 
punish somebody for being, you know, having the first turn or having a faster army necessarily either with that scenario. But there are a couple of key things that I have a bone to pick with those scenarios in particular. I personally think that plunder is just a better scenario and mm. loot is just the lesser of the two scenarios. Mm. So in my opinion, I would just scrap loot altogether because plunder is loot with just more tokens. And mm. I think more tokens, more ways to win is just better. More interesting, that right? Book. Yeah. Uh, it, it just develops into better games, you know, more interesting gameplay and less of those. And also if there are five tokens versus three, there's less opportunity for what you described as well, where a unit goes up, picks up the tokens and then can run away because you only need two tokens and loot. And that that's actually pretty easy to then play keep away with two tokens. Whereas if there are five tokens, you, you know, and some of them are worth more and I have a hot take on that in just a moment, but you can, you know, you force your opponent to have more of those same elements and they have to, you know, use three units maybe to keep away. And if you're taking three units out of a 13, 14, 15 drop army, that's a pretty significant chunk. And ideally you should be able to punch through and eventually get to at least one of those tokens to bring the game back in your favor. So I, I see those tactics maybe going away if we address some of these other things. Mm. So one, drop loot as a whole. Two, I think that for plunder, the value of the loot tokens, all five base values need to be increased, increased to two points each. And then each opponent picks one to be a three-point token instead of a two-point token. So okay. instead of doubling the value where you have effectively seven points across five tokens for the game as it is now, mm -hmm. you only need two, the two two-point tokens to win. And right. those other three tokens don't matter then if somebody says, I'm going for both two-point tokens. We're, we're just playing that game. Yep. Now, it matters when it comes to Blackjack, you know, an incremental increase in scoring. But I think that if you have all, you know, three tokens that are worth two and then two that are worth three, you, you have to diversify then. So you have to say, I want to go after you have to go after three tokens to win the game. Or at the very least, if you're only going after the two higher point ones, it's a draw if you sacrifice the other ones to your opponent. Mm. And again, I think that is a minimal complexity increase for a much more game diversity and much more balanced outcome of the scenario in the end. Yeah, you're right. Because like, even if I grab the two, three points, I have to at least deny you from grabbing one of the two pointers to win the game rather than the game being as of plunder right now many times it developed into the situation where you're just fighting for the two-point tokens right so it becomes loot with the two two-point tokens at that point yeah and loot being a three point three one point token scenario i think that's just too small anyway so you're right plunder just becomes the let's fight over two loot tokens now scenarios so but yeah, those are my hot takes. I, I think, you know, just to recap, the drop loot as a whole, if you don't want to drop it, you need to reevaluate it entirely and come up with something new to, to implement 
some of those aspects to it. And then plunder needs to have those changes to where the tokens values are adjusted for a more equal gameplay overall. Yeah, I do think there are quite a lot of scenarios that at the end of the day tends to favor the center combat. And there's too many of them that does so. Even for example, raise and salt the earth. Salt the earth, the center one can't be burned, right? Raise, you burn the tokens, but there's also a center one. So there's probably always going to be a center combat when you play these scenarios. And the most egregious one to me is dominate. It's just a <laughs> battle for the center. I don't like that scenario, actually. I think it's too one-dimensional. What do you think of that? I... I, I like the scenario, but I have always been under a, a philosophy of a great player in Dustin Howard. And you you should build your list to play Dominate, because if you can't win Dominate, you your list should not be something that you play. And for right rightful reasons, because like you said, there are, you know, two, three, four scenarios that have you fighting over a center objective token that you need to win in the end right and mm -hmm. when a third of the current scenarios are fight over the middle in some capacity you need to have that element in your army so i agree that it could be more diverse that you know having a center token in some of these scenarios really lessens the effect of the dominate scenario as it is because if we just had one scenario that you were fighting over the center and trying to control that certain zone, I think it would be a much more appealing scenario to to yeah. everybody. But I, I can definitely see your point of view where Dominate just seems redundant when we have these other scenarios that are doing the same thing with a little bit extra added to it. Yeah. And if I were to introduce kings of war to a new player and we're not and to not play kill as our first game the one that i would default to is actually invade because it's very easy to understand right see who has most of more units that's across the center line and and yeah that's very easy even easier than dominate because you need to have a template or you know you put a token down to mark the center you still have to measure that bubble Whereas Invade is quite easily, you can sort of eyeball where the center line is. And then if you really need to measure, just measure 24 inches from the edge. Yeah, I, but that being said, there were a lot of draws in the Invade scenario at Masters. Why is that so? I'll be honest, I don't know, Paige. I, was, I wasn't as invested or involved in the outcome of any of the games while, while yeah, the you're running logistics, ongoing. right? Yeah. Right. So it, it you know, it kind of dawns on me, you know, looking back that it wasn't until like round four or five that I was looking at people and where they were actually placed. I, I had a loose idea after the first day of a couple of people just because we were, you know, making sure scores were correct and getting the the information available and, and things like that. But, you know, round five comes around and I'm just like, 
how is my club mate even doing? Like, how, how is Billy Hedinger doing? And, you know, I look, it's like, oh, okay, you know, three wins, two losses. Like, I, I haven't even talked to him about his games at all. And, you mm -hmm. know, there was a lot of that when I, you know, look and I'm just like, you know, round six, it's like, oh, it, it's, you know, Nathan Clevenger, a name that I was not surprised to hear on top table. And then Luke Frazier, and I'm like... I remember Luke's name, but I only remember it because I saw it towards the top after day one. And then it wasn't even until like halfway through their last game that I'm like, what is Luke even playing? Like, I didn't even know what army he was playing <laughs> during the tournament. So, yeah, I, I just wasn't really keeping up. And so, honestly, it wasn't even until after the event that people brought up that there were a ton of draws and invade in round four that I was like, oh. Well, that that's weird because I just didn't even really consider it. I wasn't actually looking at the outcome of the the games. I was just making sure that the outcomes matched each other. You know, cr cross referencing to make sure both opponents filled it out mm -hmm. right, and that that was that was all I was looking at. So, yeah, um, but, but I think it's very difficult to actually draw and invade. So it it is very surprising. Yeah, because even if you were to avoid confrontation with each other and just run your armies across the board, right? It, you would have different amount of unit strengths. Even your list going into the game have different unit strengths. So for you to tie and invade the exact same amount of unit strength crossing yeah. over. Absolutely, because yeah. usually invade, the way I look at it is if if I have more unit strength than my opponent, then I dictate where we're fighting. You know, I choose, well, I'm going to, you know, deploy more on the yeah, left, right. more on the right, or maybe I want to spread you out and have two fronts and say, which one are you going to come after if I'm fast enough to, you know, maybe come help out the other, you know, the other part of the army. Mm -hmm. um, so, but if it's just dead straight equal, a you know, unit strength to start, it's, you know, just a natural game. It's almost like a game of kill at that point, right? So yeah, it's very surprising that outcomes were not more one-sided in that scenario. Yeah, because it's easier to tie in an objective-based game, right? We each hold one token or we each hold two objectives, whereas unit strength is so much more granular, right? There are 20 over unit strength in each army. Right. Like a one point difference out, out of 20 over would be the difference between win and win and loss, right? Yeah, so, and yeah, that's like, pretty interesting. I think control is probably the scenario that I think about most easiest as tie. the easiest to draw with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, but yeah, it, it yeah, was crazy. we each hold our center. You win the left, I win the right, and then it'll be a draw. Yep. Yeah. All right. I think we've rambled on long enough. Great catching up with you, and. Yeah, I think I need anything else you'd like to say before we close out the podcast. I think I got my shameless plugs in there, so I <laughs> I just I just really appreciate you having me on, Paige. It's always fun to just You need to chat. hold up your master site neon blinking <laughs> lights banner right now. Yeah, yeah. But, I'll I'll get you the link to make sure that you put it in the comments for me and everything, Paige. Yes. I, I'll do that <laughs> automatically, no problem, Adam. Well, I'm not oh, I'm not that. as big as big as a podcast as Countercharge, so I'm not sure how much more eyeballs you're gonna get from being on this podcast. 
But I do appreciate you coming on as well as we just talk shop and catch up with each other. Yeah, it's always great to talk. Thanks again, Paige. Yeah.